Turn with me uh, for one last time to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, just in time. The pages are falling out of my Bible. I guess that's a good thing. We've been here since November, and I have turned here so often that the pages have actually come loose. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. But uh, today we end our study of the book of Colossians. Uh, We began back in November, I believe it was. And so this is it. Now you might be wondering to yourself what happens next Sunday. If you've been here a while and uh, you've been paying attention, you will be expecting the life of David next Sunday, aren't you? Yes, one or two of you nod your heads. For the past five years, four months, we've had a, uh, a pretty simple uh, strategy in terms of our worship time. We began in the book of John, New Testament, and then we went to the Old Testament, Old Testament history, and then to Old Testament prophecy, and then back to the New Testament. So three steps, New Testament, Old Testament history, a book from Old Testament history, and then a book from Old Testament prophecy. And that has been our annual cycle for over five years. Well, in terms of Old Testament history, it's due up next. And we've been through the book of Judges. We've been through the book of Ruth. We looked at the life of Samuel. We looked at the life of Saul. And so next up, in the batting order, the life of David. But that's not what we're going to do. Here's the curveball. We met as elders back in February. And uh, I had been planning to do the book of Romans in adult Sunday school class, and we talked about it and thought that it might be best, it would be best to tackle the book of Romans corporately right here in worship. And so that's what we're going to begin next Lord's Day. We're going to veer a little bit. We're not traditionalists. We can do that. We're going to veer a little bit from what has been our tradition these five years or so and uh, begin a study of the book of Romans next, uh, next Lord's Day. And we'll be there probably for for close to two years. So you can have that book memorized for next Sunday, and you'll be good to go with Romans chapter 1, verse 1. But for today, we finish our study of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Uh, I trust you've learned a great deal. If you're a visitor, obviously not. If you've only been here a couple of Sundays, obviously not. But I'm speaking to those who have been here for the duration I trust you've learned a great deal, many truths, many lessons, three, uh, briefly, three in particular. First is this, I trust you've learned that Christ is a sufficient Savior. Oh, I pray you've learned that. Christ is a sufficient Savior. Uh, That's the main subject when you think in terms of the first section in this book. The first section encompasses chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 3. And in that first section, Paul is very doctrinal. And he affirms the sufficiency, all sufficiency, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key verses are verses 15 through 20. Master those verses interpret the rest of the section in the light of those verses, and you've got it. You've really got it. Uh, Paul's affirmation, doctrinally speaking, 
that Christ is a sufficient Savior, given who he is, the eternal God, and given his finished work upon Calvary's cross on behalf of sinners. So I trust. I trust you have learned that Christ is a sufficient Savior. Secondly, I trust you have learned that union with Christ is all-encompassing. We learned that in the second section. It begins, you guessed it, in chapter 2, verse 4, and carries on through the end of the chapter, verse 23. That union with Christ, by virtue of union with Christ, we have everything we're going to get. Union with Christ is all-encompassing. The key verses, 8 through 15. You interpret the rest of the section in light of those verses, and you've got it. You've got it. That we are made one with Christ. And by virtue of the fact that we are one with Christ, praise God, his righteousness is mine. And so of me, a filthy sinner, I stand righteous in the sight of a holy God because I am one with his blessed son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Equally true, his holiness is mine. Equally true, his death, burial, and resurrection are mine. Therefore, the penalty of my sin is paid in full. The power of my sin is broken. All of these blessings, privileges, gifts, graces, we might say, they're all mine because I am in union with Christ. I have got everything I'm going to get. And so don't be distracted by legalism, remember? Don't be distracted by mysticism. And don't be distracted by asceticism. The starting point of Christianity, the starting point of what it means to be a Christian, The starting point and the end point of the Christian journey is union with Christ. The issue is not how close are you to God. You're as close as you're going to get. The issue is whether or not we're living in the reality of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue is do we get it? Do we understand we're a new creation, we are a new humanity, that we are one with God's beloved Son? Everything flows from that great truth. Thirdly, I trust that you have learned that union with Christ is all transforming. That's what we learned in the third section. It begins in chapter 3, verse 1. It carries on through chapter 4, verse 6. The key verses, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 3. And here in this section, Paul demonstrates, he shows us that union with Christ touches everything. Uh, It changes the way you are as a husband, the way you are as a wife, the way you are as an employer, the way you are as an employee. It changes your personal life and your pursuit of holiness. It changes your relationship with God. It changes and alters your relationship with other believers. It changes, alters, impacts, influences your relationship with outsiders. It touches everything. Uh, Union with Christ is all-transforming. And so at the very least, I hope, I pray, I trust that you have learned those three great truths, those three great lessons, and today we finish it all off with what can only be described as a tantalizing text. Uh, I say that facetiously, and you will see why in just a moment as I begin reading in verse 7. Now, there are some difficult names here. Uh, You say foyer, I say foyer. Or is it the other way around? I've been here too long. I don't remember. (laughs) There are some difficult names here. Perhaps you pronounce them differently or you've heard them pronounced differently. Bear with me. Verse 7 of Colossians chapter 4. 
Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, just pause there for a moment. Jesus was a popular name in that era. It's the equivalent of Joshua, right? So it was a popular name. So here was a young man named Jesus who was also called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision, uh, that means Jews, fellow Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now just pause there. Uh, you're flipping through your Bible. What, what, letter, what letter is that? Uh, I'm inclined to think it's Paul's epistle to, to the Ephesians. You go back and you actually look at some of the, the oldest manuscripts that we have in the Greek language of that epistle. Ephesus the word Ephesus actually isn't in there. And so the belief is that that letter was actually uh, written generally, yes, obviously to the city, inclusive in that, to the city at Ephesus, but more, it had other, Paul made copies and sent it to other places, including Laodicea. Laodicea, Colossae, Ephesus, Hierapolis, they're all close, knit together in the same general area in West Turkey. So I'm inclined to think this is the epistle to the Ephesians. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In other words, he's dictated this letter, right? Someone else has actually penned it, but he's taken the pen, he's grabbed it out of his scribe's hand, and he says, I write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. A tantalizing text. A bunch of names, difficult to pronounce, far off places. Some of us have been there. Most of us have never been there and will never be there. A divorce separated by history, 2,000 years of history and yet a tantalizing text. How are we going to approach it? What are we going to do? Well, I think it's safest to stick with Paul's main theme. Uh, As I've emphasized over and over and over again, his main principal theme in this epistle is union with Christ. Stick with that theme, keep it in view, central before us, as we make our way through these verses, and we'll do all right. And what I want us to affirm is three truths concerning union with Christ, that emerge as we analyze, as we consider Paul's relationships with his friends. And so number one, the reality, here's the first lesson that we see here, that the reality of union with Christ is seen 
in what Paul feels about these people. That's good. The reality of union with Christ is seen, it is evident, it is manifested in what we see concerning Paul's relationship, in particular how he feels about these people. Look briefly, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother. Verse 9, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician. He uses the word three times. He could have used it umpteen times in these verses. It is descriptive of his basic relationship with these men, with these women. It is characterized, it is marked by Christian love. Notice three things. This love is inclusive. Inclusive. It includes a bunch of people. You go through the list of ten names, you know what we have? We have Jews and we have Gentiles. We have men and we have women. We have masters and we have slaves. We have rich and we have poor. We have educated and we have uneducated. We could go on. Paul loves them all. His love is inclusive. Notice, secondly, his love is expressive. Verse 18 I have in mind. Look at what he says there. He's taken the pen with his own hand. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. He's in a jail cell in the city of Rome as he writes this letter. Back in chapter 1, toward the end of that chapter, he reminds his audience, he reminds his readers that the reason he's in jail The reason he is suffering so much is because he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He doesn't stop there. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. And so his imprisonment and the very essence of his suffering, we can chalk it up to what? Yes, firstly, his love for the Lord Jesus. Secondly, and equally important, equally true, his love for the church. I am in chains. And I am in chains for the proclamation of the gospel, the mystery of Christ. I am in chains. I am in prison because of my labors on behalf of the Lord Jesus, the head of the body, the head of the church. I am in chains on behalf of the church. Oh, his love is expressive. Notice thirdly, his love is affective. A, not E. Affective. In other words, his love actually influences him as it is reciprocated. Look, I'm thinking of verse 11. And Jesus, who is called justice, these, and so he's mentioned Barnabas, Mark, a couple of others, these are the only men of the circumcision, they're Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort Oh, they have been a comfort to me. His love is effective. It is reciprocated. And his love for them, their love for him, is a source of continual comfort, strength, encouragement for the Apostle Paul as he finds himself in the most difficult situation, his imprisonment in Rome. 
Some time ago, I think it was back, I'm pretty sure it was back when we were looking at the Psalms of Ascent. And I think it was Psalm 130. Uh, when, we, when we consider what it means to maintain unity within the body of Christ, I share with you a word that Kevin Day Young has manufactured. Uh, the word is decorpulation. We all know what decapitation is, right? It's a rather grisly thought, but here we go. Decapitation, the removal of the head from the body. Well, Kevin DeYoung has, has employed this word, he's fabricated this word, decorpulation, the removal of the body from the head. Why? He uses it to describe many within the professing church today. And he says, what we have, this is a common trend within the church among many professing believers, we have decorpulation. That is, we have many professing believers who think it's possible to love the Lord Jesus Christ without making any commitment to the body of Christ. We have a bunch of people who think they can actually be in a relationship, meaningful relationship with Christ, the head, without making any commitment to Christ's body. Uh, we have people who think that their relationship is, is, is purely based on, on yes, just, it's one-on-one, individualistic, Christ and them, without any regard for the greater body of Christ, decorpulation. Paul would not have been able to mentally compute such an idea. He wouldn't. If, if Paul were on the scene today and witnessed what is so prevalent within American evangelicalism today, this trend of decorpulation, um, I think he would have been flabbergasted, just floored. He wouldn't have words to express it. Mentally, he would have had extreme difficulty just computing it. This idea that someone can actually think they're in relationship with the head while completely disregarding the body. No, for Paul to love Christ is to love the, the church. For Paul to be committed to Christ is to be committed to the church. Uh, for Paul to be faithful, loyal to Christ is to be faithful, loyal to the church. They cannot be separated, differentiated, the head and the body. They constitute one entity. And so to love Christ is to love the body, and we see this in living color here, don't we? The Apostle Paul consumed, oh, consumed with his love for his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love flowing over into his love, his relationships with fellow believers who constitute the body of Christ. So that's the first thing we learn. We learn the reality of union with Christ is seen in what Paul feels about these people. Number two, the reality of union with Christ is seen in what Paul says about these people. What does he actually say? There are ten of them, beginning with Tychicus in verse 7, ending with Archippus in verse 17. Some, he actually makes two or three comments, really gives us some weighty information about certain individuals. Others, he just makes passing reference. But if we pay attention to his comments... If we pay attention to his remarks, however brief, we see the reality of union with Christ and what it entails and how it expresses itself in the lives of these men and women. And what I want you to do as I go through this list, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. I'm going to move through them fairly quickly. But as we go through, see who you relate with. I'm guessing you can relate to multiple individuals mentioned in these verses. Uh, I'm guessing most of us here 
will be able to relate to six or seven, perhaps eight of these individuals. And in relating to them, we see that what Paul says of them sheds light on how the reality of union with Christ is to be made manifest, evident in our lives. So we begin with Tychicus, verse 7. Who is this guy? He is, simply put, one of Paul's fellow workers. And Paul is sending Tychicus where? He is sending him from Rome, the city of Rome where Paul is, where Paul writes this letter. He is sending him to Colossae, and he is sending him, he is entrusting him as the messenger. And so Tychicus is actually going to carry this letter with him from Paul to the church in Colossae. Look at why Paul is sending him, verse 8. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. And so I've shed a little light on our condition in this letter, but I want you to hear it from him firsthand. And so that's why I'm sending him to you. He's going to give you a verbal report, verbal account of how we are. We, Timothy, who Paul mentioned right back in the introduction in chapter 1, Epaphras, who is with Paul, and undoubtedly others. He's going to come to you, and he's going to tell you how we're doing. But notice what he says after that. That you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. How? How is Tychicus going to encourage their hearts? How is he going to encourage this church? In many ways, I want to stay in the text. I think a beautiful answer is found back in verse 7 in Paul's description, threefold description of this man. He is a beloved brother. He is a faithful, loyal minister. And he is a fellow servant. Threefold description of Tychicus. First of all, a beloved brother. He's one who loves as I love, and his love is seen in what? Faithfulness. A faithful minister. Selflessness. A fellow servant. Tychicus is going to encourage them how? By simply being what he is. That's how. Nothing fancy here. Uh, No special endowment here. Simply a believer in union with Christ. Simply a believer living out the reality of his relationship with the Lord Jesus. A believer with his threefold emphasis, three marks, beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. And as Tychicus simply is who he is. In the presence of these believers, Paul knows he will encourage their hearts. He himself, by being who he is, will be a great source of comfort a great source of strength, a tremendous source of encouragement. The lesson for us is simply this. Union with Christ gives encouragement. I, think, uh, I don't think I'm too far off the mark here. That's what we should be like. Right? We should be like Tychicus. If I am in union with Christ and I know anything of the transforming power of the gospel, then I'm going to be a beloved brother. I'm going to be a faithful minister. I'm going to be a fellow servant. You know, when I'm discouraged, those are the kind of people I want to be around. I don't know about you. But when I'm down in the dumps, those are the kind of people I go looking for. Beloved brothers, faithful ministers, fellow servants. Oh, how we should strive after these things. Manifesting the reality of our union with Christ. Union with Christ gives encouragement. Second individual, Onesimus, verse 9. And with him, that is with Tychicus, Onesimus, 
Similar description. Our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Huh, Onesimus is one of them. That means Onesimus is actually from what? The city of Colossae. But now he is where? He's in the city of Rome. Huh, Onesimus. I'm going to say it one more time. Onesimus, all you Bible scholars. Where do we go? The book of Philemon. Onesimus is a slave. And Onesimus fled, having stolen something, belongings, from his master Philemon. He fled from the city of Colossae. He ended up in Rome where he thought he could get lost in the crowd. God converted him. And God brought him within the sphere of influence of the Apostle Paul. And Tychicus, Tychicus, Paul sending him with this letter to the church at Colossae, to Colossae, but he's sending a second letter with him. It's his personal letter to Philemon. And in that letter, what is he explaining? He is explaining to Philemon and Onesimus, look, you're both believers. You're both in union with Christ. You both have tasted of the transforming power of the gospel. Therefore, this has altered your relationship once and for all. This has transformed the way you're going to relate to each other in that most basic relationship of master and slave. Philemon, you are to receive Onesimus how? Not as a slave, but as a brother. And Onesimus, you're to go back to Philemon and submit yourself to him. And so here we see union with Christ at work in the lives of Philemon and Onesimus and in their relationship transforming it. The lesson is this. Union with Christ produces change. It produces change. You need to be convinced of that. I need to be convinced of that. We're prone to think nobody's ever going to change, aren't we? Uh, We're prone to think that people are so hardened in their ways, in their views, in their habits, in their lifestyles, that they're never going to change. We're prone to think that people are so broken, or that relationship is so broken, It is beyond repair. And yet here is great hope. Here is our great confidence. It is not our wittiness. It is not our ability to counsel. It is not our ability to give advice. It is the transforming power of the gospel of the living God. It is to bring people into union with Christ. And it is to apply the reality of what it means to be one with Christ. Apply the reality of what it means to have taken to heart the gospel of Christ and applying it to broken people. Applying it to broken relationships. Applying it to broken marriages. Applying it to broken families. And then it is standing back. It is trusting. It is waiting. It is anticipating that God would be pleased to manifest his sovereign power, manifest his sovereign wisdom, manifest his sovereign grace in changing, softening, altering. Here we have a living example of it. We have a slave hundreds of miles away from his master. We have a social system that was despicable, deplorable. 
we have a situation, boy, just throw my hands up in the air, Philemon back there, Colossae, he's a Christian, Onesimus here now, boy, this is beyond my pay scale, I don't know what to do with this, I don't know how to handle this. But here we have Paul bringing both into the realm of what it means to be one with Christ and how that union changes, alters, touches everything when it is applied to our most basic relationships. Third individual is this. Aristarchus gets a brief mention right at the outset of verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. We first read of Aristarchus when Paul, during one of his visits in Ephesus, I believe it is, Aristarchus joins with Paul, and he stays with him during a part of his missionary journeys anyway, obviously accompanies him in some fashion to the city of Rome, and for his troubles, he actually ends up getting arrested. And now Aristarchus is simply identified as what? My fellow prisoner. That's another man in chains, another man suffering for the gospel, another man suffering for, for his love for the Lord Jesus, suffering on account of his love for the church. Here's a lesson for us. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. And this is a difficult one to, to swallow. Union with Christ entails suffering. It does. It entails suffering. Don't, don't misunderstand me. We don't go looking for suffering as Christians. We don't adopt a martyr syndrome, right? We don't uh, go around looking for trouble and inviting uh, discomfort, pain, whatever, uh, into our lives. But at the same time, as Christians, we understand that this, this fundamental, basic truth that union with Christ does, more often than not, in some way, varying shapes, varying sizes, undoubtedly, but it does in some way bring us into the realm of suffering. That is an anathema to us here in the West. Anathema. Our entire society is founded upon and shaped according to what? The idea that something is wrong with suffering and our goal should be to what? Fix it. We're fixers. Something arises, you fix it. You deal with it. And certainly, when suffering arises, if it's within our power to deal with it, we deal with it. Don't misunderstand me. But at the same time, coupled with that, we must never lose sight of this most basic truth. We live in the last days. We live, you'll remember, in, the, in that period of overlap between the two ages. We still live in a fallen world. And we live in a world that at its basic foundation is hostile to the Lord Jesus. Guess what? We are one with the Lord Jesus. Guess what? At some point, that's going to make things a little uncomfortable for us. It will. And here we have Paul in a jail cell. We don't, we don't adopt a defeatist attitude. That's not what I'm saying either. Here is Aristarchus in a jail cell. Here are two men, fellow workers, suffering on account of their relationship with the Lord Jesus and their faithful proclamation of the gospel. 
And we dare not miss this lesson. If God has spared us suffering, thank him for it. But at the same time, get ready for it. If he has spared us to this day, and he continues to spare us, praise him and thank him. That's tremendous. We should receive that as a gift. But at the same time, we should prepare for it. Because union with Christ, some way, at some point, at some time, it will entail suffering. The fourth individual. I know I've got the pronunciation of this one right. Mark. There it is. The cousin of Barnabas. Concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Briefly. Refresh our memories. Mark. Mark. On the first missionary journey, you've got three. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. They've embarked on that journey. They've left the city of Antioch, and off they've entered into Asia, what we call modern-day Turkey. And no sooner, no sooner have they started to proclaim the gospel than opposition arises. And who heads for home? Mark. I didn't sign up for this. Suffering, anathema. That's not, that's not why, when I signed up on the dotted line, I, I, I forgot to read the footnotes, and I didn't understand that this, you know, this might actually get difficult at some point. So Mark heads for home. Paul and Barnabas complete their first missionary journey. They're back home now. They decide it's time to head out on a second missionary journey. Barnabas, I think probably because of the family ties, maybe an aunt or uncle was putting pressure on him. Uh, he wants to take who with him? Mark. Paul will have? None of it. None of it. Paul goes his separate way, one way. Barnabas and Mark, they go the other way. The two of them separating, agreeing to separate over the issue of what to do with Mark. Now, this is wonderful, this little verse here in this comment. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This is years later. Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. We don't know the details, but we can conclude what? They've reconciled. Something's happened. Paul has reconciled with Barnabas, and Paul has reconciled with Mark, and now Paul encourages the church to receive Mark. In his epistle to Second Timothy, he's actually going to describe Mark as one who is useful to him in the ministry. We don't know how this reconciliation took place. Undoubtedly, the Lord used Paul's hard line to discipline Mark. He probably used Barnabas, an encourager, to help Mark along the way. We also know Mark spent time with Peter in Rome, and so perhaps he used Peter's influence in Mark's life. But a transformation takes place, and the result is reconciliation. The lesson is this. Union with Christ fosters reconciliation. Why? Because union with Christ fixed upon the cross of Christ, crushes us to the ground. It crushes us to the ground. And as God's grace in Christ crushes us to the ground, it shapes us, it molds us, whereby reconciliation becomes the norm. The willingness to put aside our own interests, the willingness to put aside our own viewpoints, the willingness to put aside our own tastes and our own preferences, the willingness to exercise humility 
one toward another, bringing about this kind of reconciliation. Again, here's the lesson. Union with Christ fosters reconciliation. Fifth individual, justice, verse 11. Jesus, who is called justice. We made mention of this already. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. He describes them all as what, at the end of verse 11, comfort. I'm thinking of justice in particular because Paul doesn't say anything, about other, anything else about him other than this fact that he is a comfort to him. And so justice, his presence, his ministry, his relationship with the Lord Jesus spills over in such a way and to such a degree that it is an ongoing source of comfort to Paul in the most difficult of circumstances. Here's the obvious lesson. Union with Christ imparts comfort. And so when we find ourselves in the depths of sorrow, those days we're not doing well. Those days when everything seems bleak and our countenance is downcast. These are the kind of people we want to be around. Those who are in union with Christ. Those who are in a vital living relationship with the Lord Jesus. Those who know something of what it means to be with the one with the triune God. Those who have taken it to heart who know what it means to have God's presence with them at all times, those who know what it means to enjoy the sovereign power and infinite greatness of the Father, those who get it, understand what it means to be one with the Lord Jesus and bask in his perfect righteousness and his eternal intercession. Those who know the work of the Holy Spirit and enjoy his influences daily. Oh, justice, these men, as Paul rubs shoulders with them, as he talks with them, speaks with them, debates with them, prays with them, ministers with them, they are a constant source of comfort. Sixth man, Epaphras. We've heard that name before. Paul mentions him back in chapter 1 where he commends his ministry to the church at Colossae. Here he introduces him again, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. So he's from the church at Colossae. He visited Paul in Rome. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you. Now notice what Paul says. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now notice what he goes on to say, verse 13. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So two things Paul hones in on. First of all, Epaphras' prayer life, his prayers. Notice how he describes it, verse 12, his prayers as a struggle, an ongoing struggle. The second thing is his service. And notice how he describes his service, verse 13, He has worked hard. Here's the lesson. Union with Christ sweetens service. Union with Christ sweetens service. Here's my problem, and I'm guessing many of you struggle with this. When it comes to prayer, and when it comes to serving the Lord, we expect it to come easily and naturally. We do. If it doesn't, we think something is wrong. I know I'm right. We expect it to come easily and naturally. If it doesn't, something must be wrong. 
when in actual fact the opposite is true. If it comes easily and naturally, I guarantee you something is wrong. Prayer is difficult. We are called to labor in prayer. Service is difficult. It is hard work, and we are to embrace it. But union with Christ sweetens both. He is our master. We, we, we ascribe to the lordship of Christ. We understand the grace of Christ which flows to us by virtue of our union with him. We understand that all that we are, our identity has been transformed and now shaped by our relationship with him. And that compels us to what? It compels us to labor in our prayers for others. It compels us to hard work in our ministry, in our service, in our labors for others. Union with Christ, one more time, sweetened service. The seventh individual, Luke. Verse 14, who is he? The beloved physician greets you. That's all he says. But we turn, for example, the book of Acts. It's interesting. More or less two-thirds of the way through the book of Acts, Luke wrote that book, and as he writes it, I think it's more or less two-thirds of the way through, he begins to use the first-person plural, we, our, us. Why? Because he's with Paul. He's actually with Paul, accompanying Paul through his third missionary journey, which results in his arrest and his transport to Rome. He, he is with Paul through all of that. And it's quite unbelievable. When we, write Paul's final, when we read Paul's final epistle, his second letter to Timothy, and we come to the very end of that epistle where Paul, he includes a similar list like this, greetings and instructions and exhortations. He mentions Luke there. And you know what he says concerning Luke? He's the only one with me. He's it. He's the only one left. Others have abandoned me. Others are off doing this. Others are there doing that. Luke alone is with me. Here we enter into the arena of Christian friendship. Here's the lesson. Union with Christ nurtures friendship. I love Spurgeon's words. He penned the following. I would rather be chained in a dungeon wrist to wrist with a Christian than to live forever with the wicked in the sunshine of happiness. That's worth repeating. I would rather be chained in a dungeon, wrist to wrist with a Christian, than to live forever with the wicked in the sunshine of happiness. Union with Christ nurtures friendship. Number eight, Demas, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. What are we going to do with that? Again, 2 Timothy, the last letter, the last epistle Paul ever wrote, he makes mention of Demas in that final chapter, and here's what he says. Demas has left me. Why? Because he is in love with this present world. He's gone. This so-called fellow worker, this so-called labor, fellow laborer, this so-called Christian, this so-called follower of the Lord Jesus, he's apostatized. He has left me. He has abandoned the faith. Why? Because he is in love with this present world. The lesson is this. Union with Christ challenges presumption. Union with Christ challenges presumption. Perhaps some here can relate to Demas. I suppose it's entirely possible. You know, in Paul's day, in Paul's day to be part of the church, 
in such, such a hostile environment, to be part of a church uh, in the midst of a society which was most certainly not, certainly not a Christian culture, um, pretenders, they didn't stick around very long. They might latch on for a little while, right? They might get engaged for a short period of time. They might profess faith. I mean, it's the parable of the sower, isn't it? The seed sown among the thorns. And uh, it sprouts up quickly. And then what happens? The pleasures of the world arise, and they choke out that seed, and it withers, and it disappears. That's Demas. But here's the problem in our day. Here's the problem as I see it in our day. Demas today could still live happily in the church. That's the problem today. He'd feel comfortable still in the church, loving the present world. That's our problem today. We live in such a so-called Christian culture. The church reveling in what can only be described as a state marked by being lukewarm. That a Demas, he wouldn't depart. He wouldn't have to. He wouldn't be expected to because he could carry on business as usual quite happily uh, in the midst of most professing Christians today. It's a grave danger. Union with Christ challenges, challenges presumption. The question is this, whom do I love, right? Do I love the Lord Jesus or do I love this present world? Maybe I've said this before, I can't remember. The problem is far too many professing Christians today only like Jesus. They like him. They do not love him. Their love is fixed on this present world. Hear these words. It is possible to be in a position of external privilege without experiencing inward change. It's entirely possible. In other words, it's possible to hear the preaching of the word, fellowship with Christians, year after year after year, external privilege, without experiencing any inner change. It is possible to associate with the people of God without ever fellowshipping with the Son of God. I'm drawing this one out a little bit. I'm drawing it out because here, pastorally, this has probably been, no, not probably, undoubtedly has been, my greatest source of grief during my time with you. Those who have loved this present world. Those who have at one time been with us. And those because of their love for this present world have left us. Equally true, those who love this present world and yet still continue with us. Those who have left us, they're beyond my reach. They're beyond our reach. Praise God, we're Calvinists. We believe in the sovereignty of God. And we trust that no one is beyond the Spirit's reach. But those here right now, I suppose this is why I'm emphasizing it so strongly, understand that union with Christ is a transforming reality. It alters the object of our love definitively and finally, whereby we love the Lord Jesus Christ. And Demas, here he is. I mean, Demas, what what he must have seen, what he must have heard, what he must have done, all the while Demas is an imposter. 
He is the seed sown among the thorns. An individual who is pretending. An individual, when you get beyond the exterior, an individual, a man who was still in love with this present world. Number nine, Nympha, quickly. What do we know of Nympha? She's got a church in her house. Here's the lesson. Union with Christ encourages hospitality. That day, the church is considered a superstitio. That's the Latin. It actually refers to a religion that is illegal. That continues into the 4th century. So during the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, into the 4th century, churches never own property. We, we, we don't understand that. We drive through a town now. We see dozens of church buildings, right? That, you think first 300 years of the church. That just doesn't exist. There are no church buildings. They meet in caves. They meet in graveyards. They meet in fields. And they meet in people's homes. And here we have Nympha. We see her selflessness as she opens up her home as this meeting place, gathering point for this assembly, for this church. Union with Christ encourages hospitality. And finally, number 10, Archippus, verse 17. Say to him, Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Paul has already described Tychicus as faithful. He's described Onesimus as faithful. He's described Epaphras as faithful. He doesn't describe Archippus as faithful. He gives him a little shot in the arm, doesn't he? Uh, See that you fulfill. In other words, Archippus, you haven't been faithful. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Union with Christ cultivates faithfulness. Archippus needs a little reminder. Archippus needs a little exhortation. Archippus requires a little correction. And there is a tremendous lesson for us. We've seen it throughout this series. Union with Christ is is all transforming. It touches every role. It touches every responsibility. It touches every ministry. It touches every relationship. And so the question is this, am I faithful? Am I loyal to my head? Am I loyal to my master? Am I loyal to the Lord Jesus in my relationships, in my roles, in my responsibilities, in my callings? Are these things marked by faithfulness? The third lesson, quickly, the reality of union with Christ is seen in what Paul wants for these people. So we've seen it in how, what Paul feels for these people. We've seen it in what he says about these people. And thirdly and finally, we see it in what he wants for these people. What is it? Verse 18. I, Paul, write these greetings with my own hand. Remember my chains. Here it is. Four words. Grace be with you. That's all he wants. Grace be with you. That's odd. He's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have already tasted. They know the grace of God in the Lord Jesus. So why does he say, grace be with you? Because, my friends, saving grace is only the beginning. We need strengthening grace to endure affliction. We need sustaining grace to remain faithful. We need equipping grace to serve God. We need illuminating grace to understand Scripture. We need encouraging grace to vanquish fear. We need enabling grace to obey God. We need comforting grace to overcome sorrow. And we need fortifying grace to resist temptation. That is what Paul wants for this church.
grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus, grace be with you. In effect, he's saying to them, look, you're one with Christ. You're one with him. And I praise God for it. Do do you understand what that entails? That the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, when he was here on earth, he was a man. Yes, fully God. But understand, my friends, fully God. But his deity never acted directly upon him. His deity acted through a mediator, so to speak, or mediately, that is through the Holy Spirit. Everything the Lord Jesus did, he did as a man. And he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He obeyed as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. He believed. You know, the Lord Jesus believed as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. He resisted temptation as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. He persevered as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. He overcame temptation as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he has purchased the forgiveness of your sins, but it's more than that. He has purchased every grace you will ever enjoy. Do you get that? Every grace we receive from God first belonged to the Lord Jesus, purchased, earned, merited on behalf of his people, All of those graces now belong to us by virtue of our union with him. And we simply receive them by prayer. That is a loaded prayer. Grace be with you. And what a fitting way for the Apostle Paul to end this epistle to the church at Colossae. Grace. Oh, the glorious grace. All-encompassing, all-transforming grace. All that Christ has purchased on behalf of his people, may that grace be with you. Our Father, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its transforming power through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we've contemplated these verses this day, that you would help us to understand, help us to see ourselves in the text. Help us to behold ourselves in your written word. And we pray that you might indeed speak to us by your spirit through your word. And we praise you for the Lord Jesus in whom you delight, your eternal delight. We praise you for his finished perfect work. And we thank you that we are made one with him by the Holy Spirit. Receive our thanks. Receive our praise in Christ's most blessed name. Amen.